I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. I narrowed in on the pet industry being a great industry, but with no great businesses at the time. One, it was fragmented. Two, it was recession-proof. Three, it was fast-growing. So there was a lot of space in a great industry. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Today on Scaling Up, Mike Frizzell and James Edwards are my guests, and they are the co-founders of Pet Circle. These two are the quiet achievers of the Australian consumer business scene. Their story is largely untold and unknown, and perhaps that is what excited me most about this episode. Whenever a newspaper publishes lists of Australia's largest or best e-commerce players, Pet Circle is always a surprise omission to those in the know. Having grown between 50 and 100% year on year for the last decade, Pet Circle is now a business of serious scale with over $300 million in revenue. Mike and James have built a world-class business. And while this may have been done without the usual press releases or public acknowledgement, it is certainly due to deliberate decision-making that has enabled their durable long-term growth. Many just start a business and then patch the holes as they go, but that is a far cry from the Pet Circle scaling up story. From day one, both ensured the boat was watertight, from the back-end technology processes to the front-end consumer experience. I loved uncovering their magic as to what is certainly one of Australia's finest examples of growing an online business. Series 3 of Scaling Up is set against the backdrop of COVID-19, with both Australia and the rest of the world on the precipice of the biggest economic slowdown since the Great Depression. Millions of people are now working from home, and never has there been a larger catalyst for structural changes as to how we live our lives. But it's also a time that has seen a huge divergence in outcomes for many businesses. Some have exponentially grown through these structural shifts, and some, sadly, have had to put up their shutters never to return. Pet Circle certainly falls into the category of the former, but super growth set against this backdrop has its challenges as well, and it was great to get some perspectives as to how Mike and James have thought about this in real time. I hope you enjoy the scaling up story of Pet Circle as much as I did, as it really is a masterclass in how to grow an online business in the digital age. For those interested in further insights and commentary, TDM Growth Partners has been busy producing some really high quality content lately. The recent network effects video is certainly worth a watch for anyone interested in business strategy or investing. At TDM underscore growth on Twitter is a great place to stay up to date and get all the news and views there. If you want to get in touch, you can always find me on Twitter at Eddie Cowan. Mike and James, welcome to Scaling Up. Now, your story, both in its genesis and success, is largely unknown, but it's such an inspirational story that needs to be told. Pet Circle's now Australia's largest pet online retailer with over 50% market share and it's two times larger than your nearest competitor. In my mind, you have built truly a world-class business. But let's go back to the start. I love hearing the inspiration behind starting a business. I love hearing a founding story. 
I'm going to have to start with you, Mike, because I know that you're at the center of this. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the original start of the business was what, back in 2010-11, uh, probably two catalysts that got us to this point or got me to this point. Um, one was I'd quit the banking and consulting industries and decided I wanted to do something more interesting. Started just searching for businesses with a few people I knew um, and slowly kind of tip after tip um, narrowed in on the pet industry being a great industry, but with no great businesses at the time. Um, you know, one big business in the UK, Pets at Home, which is still going, had just been funded and I could see, I could see a great sector, but no great businesses. So that was one piece of information. The second was pet owner all my life. Um, I could see the use case for having heavy bulky items delivered to your house. And the third kind of trigger for me was seeing the milk delivery services of 20 years ago, which was just teenagers dropping repetitive items at a door. Those three catalysts went, there's something here. This is repetitive. This is an industry that's great. It lacks a business. And so that really set us on the path of looking at pet. And what did you love about the pet industry? This is an interesting one. It was a couple of things. Um, one, it was fragmented. Two, it was recession-proof. Um, three, it was fast-growing. And four, at the time we looked at it, which was kind of uh, quite early in the pet's evolution, the largest business was Pet Barn, and they wouldn't have been at 100 mil yet in a massive vertical. The largest e-commerce company would have struggled with being above five. Um, and Pet Barn was what ran well, but everyone else were kind of backyard operators. So there was a lot of space in a great industry. Yeah, you alluded to it there. And when they talk about emotional industries, they talk about pets and babies. And when you started, there had been no category killer really in either. You know, Baby bunting has obviously done it in baby retailing since then, but there's been a huge tailwind to the pet industry over the last decade. And I'm sure this was at the forefront of your mind. And I'm talking about the, the humanization of pets, the growth of, sort of pet parenting, you know. So this in my mind, has propelled your business into the stratosphere. Is this something that really triggered your thought process, I guess, as a pet owner at the time when you were starting? We did actually look at baby and pet mm. and side-by-side side them and mm. say, which one is the better of the two verticals, or three, that we looked at. Um, and so we did look at the two emotional ones. Actually, the reason we went with pets in the end is it's a slightly more repeatable. It's, it's a much easier repeat business. Yeah. There's less turnover points where you re, where you change your items. So they were the top two verticals, um, looking at them, both the emotional ones. Uh, but it was obvious, you could see from all of the kind of sales data, all of the global trend data, that um, spend on animals was increasing, that relationship was strengthening. So it wasn't an epiphany, but it was obvious. Yeah, I think as you know, one in three Australian households now has a pet and, and you touched on it, but the predictability of demand in pet goods is off the charts probably more than any other vertical. So it's, it's set up for online retailing, as you pointed out. And, you know, the, the largest online retailer at the time was just $5 million in revenue. So there was just a lot of clear space for you to attack this. I'm going to drag you in now, James, and you can tell your side of the story. Maybe a good place to start is how you and Mike first met and, and how you became involved in the business. Yeah, sure. So I, I finished up at university in, in 2010 and very quickly realised that I didn't want to stay in academia. What I wanted to do was go out and build something. So I went to a co-working space in Ultimo in, in Sydney called, called Vibewire. And it was, it was great. But then I met Mike and I, I felt like there was a real sort of alignment with, with values and ambition there, but at the same time, a complementary skill set and, and even way of looking at different problems. 
you know, Mike has a um, like an engineering background trained up in, in management consulting and, and in the finance industry and stuff like that. I had a um, more mathematical bent and, and came, came through from that perspective. A, a PhD in mathematics, I think. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. Um, so that, that really worked. I think for a while we were just kind of almost helping each other out. Like, um, you know, Mike was having some, some technical problems with some consultants that um, I think he'd hired to build the website. I, I was struggling to get um, traction on a, on a product I'd built, a software product that I'd built, even though it was, it was wonderfully designed and all that, no one, no one was paying any money for it. So um, it kind of fell into the, into the partnership and that was uh, a couple of months before, before launch. And I still remember sitting there um, post-launch, is the website working, is the website working? Um, and we get a bing every, every time a sale came through and it came through every few hours or something at, at the time. Can you talk me through that emotion of seeing that first sale come through? Because having interviewed Kate at Adore Beauty, her elation and how she described it was so beautiful. And, you know, she had this idea and she thought it was going to work. And please, 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 can someone go to my website and, and just buy something, please? And then it happened and that moment was just pure joy for her. So I'd love to hear your version. I'm happy to give my perspective yeah, to start yeah. with. Mine was actually the opposite. Um, so we built the site. We actually took a different approach to most. We spent the best part of nine months on logistics, scalability. Mm -hmm. um, will the technology actually support a medium-sized business? Okay, it will. And I'll put a website on it. So we came from the other way. And then, you know, we had spoken to lots of people on the way. There was an email list of 100 pet owners that we knew that were personal friends. And we sent them all the email and said, we're live. But nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And so our first lesson was, in this vertical, you can't force someone to buy. If you don't need the product, need it, you won't buy it. So if you've got dog food, you don't need dog food. And so we just sat there and it kind of went, first day, nothing. Mm. Go to the pub, have a beer. We literally it's literally did. what we did. Yeah. <laughs> it was across the road, the Glasgow Arms. Um, and so that was, that was our one. And then slowly, yeah. so the, that was the first kind of, this isn't a transactional business. This isn't a, um, a, discretion, a discretionary business that people jump to and you can force people or entice people to buy. You're solving a need. If the need isn't there, on day one, the need isn't there. And then slowly it built. That 100 slowly started to order. And you could see that it would resonate. And so then you started to get this, okay, now something's happening. But it was a different emotion for me. It was. And I think actually the first sale, which we were excited about. As I recall, she contacted us a couple of days later for, to return the dog food. So, you know, highs and lows. Sounds like you got that full customer experience of I'm going to buy and return it all in the same breath. What a joy. <laughs> all right. So from waiting for that first purchase to growing to a million dollars in that first year, what just an incredible rocket ship straight off the bat. And you've been growing so quickly since, you know, between 50 and 100% year on year. I guess the next theme I want to touch on is actually around scaling the business and the business model itself. A lot of people now say, it's never been easier to start an e-commerce business, but I'm almost at the other end of the spectrum and think it's never been harder to succeed. As I alluded to, the, the predictability of demand feels as though this is something that you really played to and, it, and it's really enabled you to scale. And I know a lot of hard work went into scaling the back end of the business. I guess from a consumer point of view, the customer facing stuff now in e-tailing is, is just table stakes. So in my mind, I just really want to focus on, on the hard stuff and, and the, the stuff that 
makes your business really special in my mind. And that's around logistics and supply and operations. Getting 20 kilo bags of pet food around the country cheaply, efficiently, on time, every time, delighting the customer along the way is not easy. And so I'd, I'd love to get your view as to how that has happened. I know it's, it's really deliberate in how you've attacked it. Okay, I mean, there's a lot in there. Um... So that let's, maybe I'll just start with the early phase and we'll jump into a few different things. So one of the things we learned early and really focused on, as you talked about with the predictability of demand was um, how do you grow quickly? You grow quickly by removing constraints and one of our constraints was cash. So we spent a lot of time understanding cash flow of the business. Yeah. And this is where our diverse backgrounds, I actually no, I remember the day mm. where they came together and we both went, ah, from two different angles, this thing is a good business. I said for a day or two, if we can get CPAs below $27, an average recurring frequency of 42 days, this thing grows forever and needs no cash. Okay, and we were kind of close to that. Cost per acquisition for, for Yeah, those, cost per acquisition. For that was a magical like first six months equation. I think you went away and ran a different mathematical model on it. I did. I, I did a <laughs> differential <laughs> equation model of it and um, <laughs> came back with the same answer actually. And, and it was that's when I believed it. And, and that was pretty exciting. That's just a, a very low cost of acquisition in the world of e-commerce by, by any measure, let alone a business with, with such a high repeat revenue base and, and you're sort of at 70 or 80% consistently. So I guess to see that massive fat tail that you could have of, of revenue from customers to only acquire them for say 40 or 50 bucks, it's just such a, a wonderful lesson. I guess we'll, we'll get into that a bit later, but Maybe we can start with, with the logistics of the business because, as I said, getting bulky goods around the country isn't easy. I know you had one warehouse to start with and, and I think you've got three now, but how did you think about optimising logistics? So there's two parts of it. It's the, the how we kind of tackle it was the, I'm going to call it theoretical approach and the confidence that there is a solution. And then there's the getting to the solution. There's kind of two separate steps. So first, first step was um, effectively sit down and determine what it would cost to ship a 20 kilo item from point A to customer anywhere in Australia based on physics, truck utilization, fuel rates, labor, labor rates, and figure out what it should cost. So you do that and you figure out it can work. Mm. It just doesn't currently. And the second was then how do you make it work? And so one of our kind of early things was we went to our suppliers of logistics. So then we went through six in the first nine months um, and didn't ask him about a good price. We said, okay, 10,000 orders a month. What's the price then? Okay, and break that price up into the three parts, from our warehouse to yours, from yours to interstate, and from interstate to the door. And I want to split them because margins are different for each logistics company in each, and then build the technology to allow us to split them. Yeah. And when you did that, you knew that the physics made sense, you could deliver it. You then knew it was possible to get good pricing on each leg, and then we knew the solution was to weave the technology together to allow it to happen. So the, the technology backend then is is full proprietary to, to Pet Circle. Yes, that was the product that I was failing to sell, um, because as Mike taught me, people tend not to read things. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that that came in and, and actually still forms the um, the basis of our of our ERP system here at Pet Circle, and that internally allowed us to, um, in a way, remove technology as, a, as an impediment to our operations in the, in the business, which yeah, allowed us to do the right sort of things. But I don't want to underplay, I'm sorry, I, I think we should re-emphasize what, what Mike was just talking about. So going out and, and breaking down the logistics, especially the outbound logistics, um, meant that we had a really good understanding of where we would get to. Like too often, 
I see, you know, new entrepreneurs trying to make money now when they're selling 10 or a hundred products a week or orders a week. And I'm like, who, who cares? If you're losing $5, $10 on an order, um, I mean, obviously you've got to have some money to back you, but that's, that's nothing. So we, we were positioning for when we were doing, um, I think originally it was 500 or something like that orders per week, consignments per week was where we were targeting. And that's where it's, it all started to, that, that's all we were focused on. We weren't worried about how to make money at, at $100 a week. We were selling the bags of dog food for less than we were paying for them. But at that we had time. a cash flow positive business. Yeah, which, the, which, the CPA and which cash was, was massive. So, so it didn't burn cash. So I, I do agree with you that logistics, the overall operations were, were a hugely important part of the early scaling. Um, equally, equally important was the financial model that allowed us to be cash flow positive because there was no way the business would have succeeded without that. But yeah, no, you're quite right. In the, the operational side, there were a lot of small competitors when we were small. And, you know, using a lot of rubbery figures, it's, it seemed to us that once they got to about 100, 200 orders a week, the operations failed. And we, we could tell that ourselves because we were, we were working all day and then packing orders. Oh, Actually, it was reverse. We were packing all day and then working all, and night. working all night. So you got to know that, oh, it's Ed's order. Ed's order's around the back. It's just, you know, because he wanted a, a dog toy with it and it's just come in. So you'd go and once you get to about 100, you, cognitively, you can't do that anymore. But we, we just raced. We raced through that. We were starting to get a lot more repeat business at that, at that point. So we, we just sailed smoothly past all these guys. What stands out to me is, is the the deliberate nature of every single decision that has been made. You know, a lot of people bang up a website, they put some products together, whether it be, you know, a white labeled product or their own, whatever it is, and, and then think they're going to sell it and, and work out the financials at, at the back end of that decision-making process. Everything was done up front here. So you could really see how this playbook was going to play out even before it started. It felt a lot more chaotic at the time, but that is essentially correct. Like, yeah. like we were always looking at, the later stage. In fact, that's that's still what happens now, right? Um, you can't be looking at today's situation. You have to be looking at, at at a year from now or two years from now. I mean, there were a lot of changes early on in the business as, as well with, with a lot of work. Um, I mean, we didn't sell cat food at the start, right? And we realized we had, we had emails from customers saying, yeah, I'd like to buy from you more often, but I've got a cat as well as a dog. And that's literally why we started selling cat food because obviously now we have cat-only customers and, 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 and all the rest of it, of course, service them fully. But yeah, at the time, it was, just, it was just basically bags of dog food. So it didn't feel like we were hitting every day. We knew exactly what we were going to be doing, but certainly the big picture was, um, was understood. Too. Yeah, it's, it's certainly something we've been accused of and still are as being very deliberate. Um, maybe too much sometimes, but... Bit, you know, very deliberate with our decisions and the big decisions we're facing now, we pick them and the actually culture and workforce composition now is what we're kind of facing and we think about them deeply. We'll, we'll get to that, there's no doubt, because listeners uh, know how much I, I love talking about people and culture. The next thread that I want to pull on is around dealing with suppliers. And for those that don't know, there are really four major suppliers in the pet industry that I'm not talking about little businesses, I'm talking about huge multinational businesses of the ilk of, of Mars and, and Nestle. You're dealing with them across thousands of SKUs. I imagine a lot of your success is your relationship with them, knowing they, they do have a lot of market power. I'm, I'm keen to unearth some of the lessons that you've learned, I guess, in, in dealing with suppliers. I mean, I think that's, a, that's actually a good, really good pickup. It's one, um, we're 10 years in now, the first six or seven, 
really did help us a lot. Um, so our relationships with your Marses, your Nestle's, your Colgate's of the world were remarkably good. Um, remarkably. I mean, the global CEO of Mars would come down and say hi, right? And we're a business that is 0.01% of their business. Mm. Um, and I think the way we approached it, and I've had you know, feedback from some of the suppliers, is just very candid, very open, very transparent, very win-win between the two of us. And they kind of appreciated that. It's a rarity in corporate, mm. uh, the corporate world. So we still get you know, founders of multi-billion dollar companies coming into this boardroom and dropping in to say hi. Now we're irrelevant on the global scale compared to their other customers like Walmart and Amazon. But we did a, you know, we just went in as real people and spoke to them as real people and that got us a long way. So that really helped us on the relationship side. Then there's also the complexity of a small business running 10,000 SKUs and the replenishment and the, the physical integration with them, which the technology helped us with. But those two sides, I mean, for six or seven years, and we're still pretty, you know, pretty close to our suppliers, mm -hmm. really, I was always surprised um, just how collaborative and engaged our suppliers were with us. Another thing that's emerging, just hearing you talk real time, is the significance and importance of technology in your business. And I'm sure we'll touch on that further. I guess it's lucky that your co-founder uh, has a PhD in mathematics. And, and a software engineer. <laughs> and a software engineer. I guess a, a lot of retailers pitch themselves as having a great tech stack, but that's you know based on Shopify apps. Equally good is my important is my ability to pack bags of dog. Food. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a good picker, but you can pack well. <laughs> that probably leads us to this technical complexity of your business, and and it's only increasing because you're no longer what I would just call a online catalog. There are live vet chats that I know that you're pushing at the moment. There's advice. There's content. You know, you're really driving deeper into this customer experience from pet selection to care. And with that comes technical complexity. And I imagine the next stage, and correct me if I'm wrong, is around machine learning and predictability of what the customer actually wants. I mean, the big challenge with, with technology is not the individual components of it, right? It's not the ability to get something up and, and running, whether it's third party or internal. The problem is integrating it all together to try and provide a, a real both a seamless experience for the customer and an integrated set of set of knowledge for our operations and, and ability to engage with those customers and and we've actually collected from customers volunteering a lot of information about their, their pets their pet names and, and and so forth and we've failed to really make use of that yet because the integration hasn't hasn't been completed but that's you know that's, that's one of the many focuses we have and, and we'll get there because it's about that emotive side of it. And I, and I love it. Like I'm a, I'm a pet owner myself, got a beautiful little cavoodle and she, um, I know it was a little bit cheesy, but if I got an email for, for Macaron's birthday, I, I just really like it. You know, I, I just really want to have that experience shared with, with, with everyone else. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're not alone there. The next theme I want to talk about is around customer acquisition and retention. And for those that are unaware, in the world of online retailing, a lot of marketing channel dollars goes into Facebook and, and Google. And unfortunately, as more and more online retailers exist, the economics are with Google and Facebook and, and not with the advertisers themselves. And so I'm really keen to understand how you control that customer acquisition cost over time, because essentially that is the, the key component of making sure that your business is cash flow positive in the long term and and eventually making money 
and of course it, there's this great case study in your vertical of Zoo Plus that hit a wall as cost of acquisition you know, skyrocketed and, and they haven't been able to make money for years. So I'm, I'm really keen to get your little secret recipe here because I do feel like there's something to uncover. Oh, there's a there's a lot in this space, but um, let's try to do a, a relatively simple version. Um, the cost of acquisition only really matters relative to how loyal your customers are, right? That's the, so that CPA to lifetime value is what really matters. So um, I think people underestimate, one, they get a business model that is fundamentally transactional and they pay for yeah. the customer each time. That's a tough business model. The second is hopefully like our business, we call it relationship commerce internally. We don't, we don't acquire orders, we acquire mm -hmm. customers and we keep them for a decade. So our spend, like if you talk about our spend on growth as opposed to acquisition, we have much more spend outside of marketing on growth than we do within marketing. Probably got three times the spend outside of it. It's on loyalty, it's on engagement, it's on the things that customers value, it's on the speed of delivery. We spent, we just sent as a nice surprise to our Melbourne customers, 20,000 caramel slices last month, because it's tough. So here's a hundred thousand dollars worth of gifts. Uh, small Sydney supplier, <laughs> uh, little green kitchen made them for us. Um, but that is that marketing? It's to existing customers only? Um, no, but it, it will increase our growth rate because our customers value it. So I think people think that marketing equals growth. It doesn't, not when you get bigger. So that's one. Um, the second is this idea of, I'll use product market fit as the, um, as the term, that you have it or you don't. You have it, then you don't. You, it's stronger or it's weaker. So when your CPA goes up, you probably have to change your service. Um, and so you're constantly adapting, are you strong on your service and therefore your CPA is low, or are you weak on your service and your CPA is high? So marketing's not the solution, it's kind of the fixed thing. Uh, and the, probably the last one, as you called out, is if 90% of your marketing is on Facebook and Google, you're in a dangerous space. Um, so try not be there. Um, so we've done kind of all those three things. Yeah. Like the, it's the two biggest mistakes people make, make with it is calling it a CPA when what they really got is a CPO cost per order. Um, and, and just yeah, not looking at the, at the lifetime value of a customer. Um, when, when they go about these sorts of things, it's purely looking at the immediate transactional cost. And this is a kind of a systemic and e-commerce issue. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I wanted to touch on because there are, there are lots of people who are listening that run their own e-commerce business that really do need to readjust their thinking. And it's, it's great to hear that from the experts. Oh, P&L, standard reporting yeah. mechanisms, yeah. the way you raise capital, this idea of CPA and payback, they're all not quite right. Um, <laughs> You can make them look great, you can make them look bad, but they don't, there's no good way of really understanding a business on a CPA lifetime value. So I think when you're first year, think about cost per acquisition. Hopefully you've got your loyalty measures really strong. You're 10 years in, it's much blurrier. Um, your loyalty rates matter more than your CPAs. I'm sure there are businesses that have failed because they wanted to keep their 10% growth per month up via a CPA agent, by, by Google AdWords. Um, as they grow, they have to spend more and more money. They have to acquire more and more customers, of course, to keep that growth rate. But there's diseconomies of scale. Like, I mean, at some point, and I forget the exact number or anything, we kind of worked out there were like 2,000 or 3,000 or something people in Australia who every month were organically saying, actually, can you buy pet food online? Can, can, can you do that? And then and finding us that way. If you wanted to get double that, your spend is going to go through the roof. It's, it's it's particularly in that channel. So we've, that we, channel. Yeah. internally, we talk about our activities being demand harvesting or demand generating. Mm. And so Facebook and Google are harvesting channels and you harvest them to a point that are economically viable. 
and then you generate demand in other channels. I just love that mental model and framework. And I think it's really important to think through, as you say, loyalty is what's leading to this lifetime value. And, and that in, in online retailing is, is really where the cream is. It's also a wonderful way to have a business, right? right? Like it means that what, what you get looking to do each day is make, make your customers better. happy. You're not trying to squeeze them. It's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's where I want to go here because you need to delight the customer. It doesn't matter what you're selling. You need to be at the forefront of their mind. You need to be delighting them every single time you interact with them. And you've since employed wonderful marketing people, but... I'm keen to know, is, is that what still gets you going? Because you need this deep passion for customer experience to deliver it. I think we talked briefly earlier today. I think so. I mean, there's a story where our, our Google reviews rating dropped from 5 to 4.9, and I was so frustrated. Um, and the rest of the team, James, is shaking his head at me. 100,000 reviews. Yeah, I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, then I, I did recalibrate that that's okay. Um, but apparently... Yes, I quite like that. Um, I also just love the, it's kind of a really unsolvable problem, consumer behavior and trying to understand what drives retention and loyalty. Mm. It's a really fun problem. Mm. Um, and so working on that problem for me is great. And it's probably one of the problems that can be best addressed at this scale that we're at now. Mm. Uh, as, you, as you sort of mentioned, earlier on in the, in the, in the business, we really had to find the right logistics provider, you know, the right courier service, the right website provider, so that now we can look at hiring vets to provide content. We can look at um, well, a bunch of other initiatives that really do help also create a competitive mode to the people who might be who might be coming in. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com. Or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. The next thing I want to touch on is around omni-channel retailing. And at the moment, you guys are pure play online and, and you always have been. At the moment, we've got lots of bricks and mortar moving to the online space and some slower than others and COVID has accelerated that. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got you know, e-tailers moving to, to bricks and mortar, you know, more so maybe in a flagship manner, but it's just a great way for their customers to be able to touch and feel the products and, and have that sensory experience and get a feel of the business that way. How do you think about omni-channel retailing? Is it ever something that you two would consider as, as pure play online retailers? Well, I'm happy to start. Um, my kind of view of the omni-channel is... Uh, yeah, if we go back, I'm going to make it up, but let's say to middle 2013, 14, um, kind of our board pack would start with fundamentally the pet retail world is broken, right? It just doesn't make sense. It's not good for the customer. It's got not good for supply chain. And so our solution was to tackle it through e-commerce because that allowed us to do the food side and the bulky stuff first. I still fundamentally think the rest is broken, which is the experiential and discovery. And if that requires us to go into physical to solve it, we will. So it's not really about is it omni-channel or not. It's mm. about is that the solution to the problem? The problem is it's really hard to discover the right products you want um, and find the information. Now, if we can solve that online, we will. If we can solve that through vets, we may. But if it requires omni-channel, then I think we, we would do it. Yeah, we, we don't... Obviously, we are an e-commerce business, but we don't See call ourselves yeah. or think of ourselves really as an e-commerce business. We, we think of ourselves as, as a digitally enabled business, right? And there would be no internal or philosophical issue with us going 
we just we wouldn't even make a big deal about it. We'd just go and go into yeah. stores. If we had stores, it'd be yeah. okay. We have stores. Why? Yeah. Well, the customers value it and it allows us to do X. Tell you one thing, we wouldn't do stores the same way that no. pet stores are right now. Yeah. <laughs> when Amazon do grocery, they didn't imagine Whole Foods would be their customer facing experience. I'm sure. I'm equally sure, like every other decision that you've made, you'd be optimizing for the experience. I guess the next theme that I want to touch on is people and culture. And you started building this business to fundamentally solve a customer problem, as we've already discussed. But now with 400 people, and you've grown kind of 4x over the last two or three years in line with revenue, now across three sites, but the problems that you now face most likely, and I'm going to have a guess here, are people problems that need to be solved. And that wasn't the case when you started out. So let's talk about the people and culture of the business and how you've built that. I'd love to know how you think about building Pet Circle's culture. I mean, I think there's a couple of elements that have always stuck with us. I'm just trying to kind of remember the early days and how we've evolved to here, which is the core of the business. We've always, there's actually a big poster out behind us, which is a photo of our warehouse and it's called the engine room. Mm. The core of the business is the people that touch the goods or the customers. So that's the first part of our culture. We're out at our Eastern Creek Fulfillment Center yesterday. We're out there every week. That is what makes us succeed or fail. We've personally worked in that probably seven different Christmases when we pinch hit on volume, mm. not for a couple mm. of years. No. Um, so the culture is born from that perspective that that's the engine and then we are sitting in the back office here that support that engine that's been hard to keep to be honest when we split the sites and now we're in a lovely cbd office um keeping that culture has been very deliberate uh before covid days we have monitors on each on our wall here in eastern creek and our perth facility and our manila facility that are two ways so you can see each other you can walk up you can wave you can talk to each other you can remain connected so we've been quite deliberate about trying to keep the company connected. The other thing we have in the company is company over function. We are solving a problem as a company. We're not solving a problem as a function or an individual. Um, that's really hard to, to scale, to be honest. Um, but that's been another thing that's allowed us to tackle problems that are systemic for our customers. Like if logistics is hard and it requires three or four teams to work on it, we work on it as a company, not as a function. So we've been trying to keep that mm. in our culture. Um, mm. And I must admit, at about this scale, I think we're going through another change where we have to figure out new tools to keep that alive. And underpinning that is obviously the, the values of the business. At what stage and scale did you actually deliberately sit down and say, these are the values that we hold dear to us and, and we're going to impart on the company? Or was it more of a bottoms up, this is what's important to everyone and this is how the business can evolve from here? I think the first time we sat down was just after we hired a head of PNC because he made us because and also that was not a coincidence though we we brought in that person in order to uh, that that role I should say because it had gone beyond the organic the, the ability to organically instill the same values to hire for the same values you know it wasn't any longer Mike and I doing all the all the hiring and speaking to pretty much everyone in the business all the time it was it was becoming more and more remote. So we needed to sort of formalize what we valued and, and how we thought about these sorts of things. And that was probably only, what was only three, three years ago or so. Yeah. I mean, we quite deliberately held off. We, I remember, that, yeah, let's say yeah. seven years ago, sitting down and everyone's saying, startup, you need to find your culture and, your, and what you should do. And we sat down and we should do this. Mm. No, we shouldn't. And we never got mm. comfortable with the idea of writing values or culture because our belief and we probably didn't articulate at the time was it has to be real and it has to be us. 
And so writing something down and seeking input in a small company from what everyone wants it to be wouldn't be real. So it took us a long time to kind of resolve what's made us a good team and what makes the people around us a good team is what is the culture. And so our job was to reflect that. This is the culture. And it came out, we've got five now, and it's, mm. you know, some of them have been uh, always communicate with trust, respect, but transparency. You're not allowed to hold something back, but you're not allowed to be an asshole. Um, and so that's a fine line. But we sat down the first time and, you know, you've seen the, the usual startup stuff. It's mm. all about the same kind of people doing the same kind of things. We didn't like that. We're actually remarkably different mm. people. Mm. Um, and so it took us a while to sit down and be comfortable with what the commonality was. And it's actually not what most startups are. Commonality is be individual. <laughs> we don't, we, you didn't get good words. You didn't call it a culture. We called it like a, a work contract. Ways of working or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. This, is a, this is a contract between you and your peers about how you'll treat each other. Because yeah. um, we thought about it as what you do at work. Like when you turn up to work, what can you expect from the business and from the people you're working with within the business. So it's a two-way, well, I guess, three-way street, mm. if, if you like. And, and that's where we want to, to start and end it. Um, so yeah, as, as Mike was saying, like honesty and, and, and clarity. And these are a lot of, these are very startup type virtues, um, but they're all about how you work within the business with each other. And now I guess it's about attracting and retaining and motivating a large group of people with over 400 staff. How do you think about this piece? We have multiple cultures. We have multiple ways of working. Um, and they're all right for the people that they serve. And so it took us a while to realize forcing our culture, which is a different history, onto one team. Now we actually have about four different cultures in the company. Mm. Doesn't make sense. We've got to figure out the culture that makes that team feel comfortable, engaged, and productive, and sit under the core values of the business. But they can be quite different. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we've kind of thought about yeah. it. They can't be the opposite of our values. They have to fit in, but they can be different cultures. So we have a large team in our warehouse. And I mean, the fact of the matter is um, that they, as a, as a group, and there are, you know, everyone's different, but as a group, they have different uh, values and they want more different things out of, out of their work than a lot of the uh, team centered, you know, in, in the city do. So we have to respect that. You know, a lot of, a lot of startup places will simply say, work really, really hard and progress within the business Okay, that's that's great, but that doesn't help someone who's um, doing a part-time job stacking shelves at night for a few years while they, um, you know, save enough money to go back to university or, so, or something like that. I mean, we we want to respect that as much as anything else. I'm really curious as to how your relationship as as co-founders has evolved. Sometimes you hear of these fractured co-founding relationships. Sometimes it brings people even closer than they were when it all began. I'm, I'm curious to hear your stories. I'd say all of the above, generally. Um, I mean, I'll, if you think through the history, the business is tough on individuals and expectations on each of us. So I have to use one, well, you know, one example, which is the easy one, which is capital raising. I mean, when I, had to, when I did the Series mm. B or whatever it was, 2017. So, yeah. I wasn't here for about a year, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you think you can do a big you know, international round with, uh, and do it in three months, you're better than me. Um, and so what that is a catalyst for is our roles shuffle, have shuffled over the years a lot. Um, I think the only function you probably haven't around is merchandising. The only one I haven't around is technology. Yeah. But we've swapped all the others. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, kind of relationship-wise, we've been through... Um, 
phases where it was, you know, we mentally said, mine is, my goal is to make sure there's no reason we don't grow and yours is to make sure there was no reason yeah. we don't crash. Yeah. Um, that works for a while. Uh, and they go through different phases. One, you know, you rebuilt the entire website in three months where you almost exploded. I did a capital raise, I almost exploded. Mm. And so highs and lows. Um, I think the main element, uh, this is my view anyway, is no matter how good or bad it gets, the one thing I personally feel is we can stop and no, the other person never thinks, I certainly don't, that the other, the other side has an agenda or is lying. That is, ne that is never there. And whether or not you like what you hear is a different yeah. thing, but that's the basis you can have a conversation upon, um, that for me anyway. Yeah, I think like people often, there's a bit of a, um, you know, the thing that people say is that a co-founding relationship is like a marriage. And, and when you, I think, it, I think it was really, really true. I was reflecting on this the other day um, because you go into that and it's actually, it's great. I really enjoy working with Mike, but especially at the start, it was, it was wonderful to meet someone who, as I say, had, had those same shared, you know, ambitions and values. And um, we would, you know, finish each other's sentences and stuff like that. But as, it's, as it progresses and we're, you know, heading into our 10th year now, um, it's also like a marriage because you fight like cats and dogs. But there's always that respect and trust yeah. that you can do that. Um, and especially as the business becomes more successful, you actually kind of need that. You do. <laughs> need, need that. I mean, it, it, that's a really good call out. It's the ability to just say, you're being a dick. Yeah. Is very early days. Lots of people tell you that. The more successful <laughs> you get, the less people tell you that. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually really useful for, to, for us to be able to say, I know what you're doing. I think you're the wrong side of our on this one. And that probably leads to the next theme that I want to talk about, and that's the impact of COVID. This is the first interview that I've done since the outbreak of a global pandemic. And it's, as we all know, ravaged small businesses, not only around Australia, but around the world. E-commerce has seen massive tailwinds because of COVID, and you've been a beneficiary of this. But something that you touched on and something that's probably more interesting, I think, is around the impact of the people inside your business. With the backdrop of COVID, how have you been able to still test and debate ideas? And how have you collaborated? We're, we're sitting in your office today and, and there's no one here. So I'm going to assume that everyone is still working from home. In terms of people and culture, how is COVID impacting your business? I think it's, it's too early to really tell. Mm. I think the positive comes early when you move to remote work and the negative comes late. So I don't think we've seen the negative yet. Um, my personal view on kind of the what's going to happen with workforce over the next five to 10 years um, is we're going to see first phase, which I'm going to call the next 12 to 24 months where we're in, which is people enjoying it primarily. We've done a lot of surveys, enjoying working from home. They're not missing much from um, their own personal perspective. The company is starting to feel, in my opinion, less collaborative, better in team, worse cross function. Um, so we come in as an executive team and a senior management team every week and try to keep that connectedness. Um, but the, that's going to be the crack that starts to grow. That, that cross-functional collaboration is going to be a crack. And I also think individually people are going to start to miss elements of their life that they don't have anymore from being more isolated. But I think that's going to take 12 to 24 months for that to dawn on, for everyone to feel that emotion. And then I think that's the new world coming. And do you have plans to, to move people back into the office? Uh, the most recent plan was we're not in the office until December. Um, no, not at this stage. I mean, I think we're in a tough transition where um, it may be better for some teams to be more co-located, but the individuals aren't quite there or seeing that yet. So you have to balance between what's better 
and what's enjoyable. And uh, and then you have to do this across, is it for the company or for the team? And well, people so, are coming in often one day a week and in, within their own teams. So we come in as a, as a management team on Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so on. So there is a little bit of, of, of still that, that cross-pollination, but I don't think it's the stable state at, no. at this point. I also think it's been, I mean, some people are in circumstances where it's much better. So, you know, both Mike and I have, have nice houses and, and families and, and this sort of stuff. We're, we're pretty happy to take a bit of a break for a while. But, you know, some of, the, some of the younger people just entering the workforce, they seem to be struggling a lot more. They don't necessarily have families at home. Well, all the infrastructure in their house, they you know they might be working from a shared bedroom. That's right. They're they're also lacking as much ability to to learn from people who who've been in the business longer and have more experience in general. And of course, we've we've been hiring, and um, it's noticeable that people who have been hired since COVID started and they're working from home are still struggling to integrate within their teams. I, I would say. Yeah, that, that's. My next point, it's very different trying to maintain a culture in COVID when a business like yours is seeing massive acceleration in terms of top line growth and you need to keep hiring and these new hires are no longer getting that immediate connection with their co-workers or even that sort of cultural foundation of the business. So we have tactics that try to address that, but it's never as good as bringing teams together. The tactics are newer teams are actually in more often than more established teams. Onboarding is now here. So if you knew you come in, <clears throat> I believe the first on-site onboarding was actually this week or yes. were remote. Yesterday. Um, what else did we do? Early days in COVID was daily. If not, you know, then dropped to three times a week. You just hear me talk for five minutes about what's happening and just send videos out to everyone. So we tried a bunch of tactics to just increase that connectivity. And I think some worked, um, but it's really just an ongoing Kind of what's the problem? The problem is new teams are struggling more. Okay, how do we address it? And then work through it. I don't think there's a good solution at the moment. Um, It's just about listening to your people and listening to um, the cracks and kind of execution of the company and marrying the two. So we're just navigating it as we go. I mean, some decisions have have been made and and are going quite well. I think uh, customer service, Mm -hmm. uh, we call our customer experience team, um, are now fully remote and that's not changing. And that's that's going great. So it means we can get talent from all around Australia, and of course, the world. Yep. potentially the world. Yeah. So um, it's it's fantastic. So that, that's been a big benefit. I'm setting up a team, and, and I've gone um, remote to start with. So I had only one one person so far, but she's she's in Perth, so isn't going to make it into the Sydney office very often. And really, really try to commit to that and make sure it, make sure it works. But it's it's different level of collaboration that's required on that front. And have- have you upped your game, so to speak, on taking the pulse of your employees through engagement surveys or, or other tools? Yeah, um, engagement surveys, more frequent. First one and out, that was quite useful under a new pulse. Um, personal management things I've changed. I've, I used to have one-on-ones with, let's say, 10 people, and now I have 20 to 25 one-on-ones now a month. And so I've taken my direct reports, the next level down, and sporadic other ones. So the way I keep pulses, there might only be 15 minutes, but I'll have lots of one-on-ones and encourage most of my senior team to do the same. Um, it just, it's more organic way of actually hearing one-to-one than this broadcast yeah. um, approach. The last theme I want to touch on is around sources of capital and funding. And for a business of your size, you haven't really taken on a huge amount of capital, but 
I still think there are lessons to be learned from your story and the types of capital that you've taken on. And the main source of capital at the start was from Blue Sky. And for those familiar with the Australian investing landscape, that story didn't end well. Uh, then Airtree came in and Craig Blair, one of the leading venture capitalists in Australia. Since then, you've had a large international growth fund as an investor. So you've you've had three very different dynamics, but underlying this is, I guess, venture would have expected supercharged growth. And I'm really curious how the source of capital has affected the inner workings of your business. And I guess the larger question is, what are the lessons you've learned along the way and, and the tips that you could pass on to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising money when it comes to the choice and quality of investors and, and why it's important? So lessons... I mean, I'll do my one quickly. The first round, which was private, um, really helpful. Like, as individuals, really great people. Really helped me along the way. Um, we brought a couple in in that last round in Series B as privates as well. Some are super useful. Some D2C consumer guys out of the US, mm. some retailers. Um, so one lesson for me was if you have the chance to raise capital, use it also to bring great people in. So some of our best kind of advisors that I chat to around the world are minority investors. Between the other two, kind of your venture, you know, many ventures and the uh, and this kind of growth fund, they're, they're different. Um, what would I? What's the advice? Um, we dug in pretty heavily in 2014-15 against the advice of most of our board, uh, who wanted us to push harder, have a bigger loss, and grow faster. So the pressures do come for that grow fast when you're in the venture world to their both of their credits the board members at the end of that said good call this thanks for not listening to us um so that was that was one that was very much that ventures grow fast you know your cpas and lifetime values lifetime values are good don't worry we'll back you if, when you need more money um, <laughs> uh, and so glad we didn't because obviously there's a history there um we remained i think remarkably capital disciplined mm. um despite that experience, you know, I think people can be turned in the wrong direction by that. Um, the the growth fund stuff, um, Neil, who's our original board member from Francisco Partners, Neil Tulane, he knows consumer and he knows e-commerce like no one I've ever met. Like we sat down and had many people that were looking at the business. We said, pro, God, he knows it well. <laughs> Con, shit, he knows it well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and so you can, you know, we, we picked mainly um, that last round was to get someone that really understood the business incredibly well and had the ability to, you know, be there for as long as required. Um, and so that was kind of our decision. What's the lesson out of all of it? I think what we did well was we raised late. We held off, we used our cash flow as much as we could. Yeah. Um, we always raised when we didn't need money every single time. We're either making money and cash flow positive or just cash flow positive, but usually both and raise from a position of strength. You know, be in control of your business. Don't ever let capital be in control of your business. Yeah, use, use the capital to continue being in control of your, your business. business. You, you don't want to just grow and then be, be forced to, to take more money to, to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. um, we rejected a number of um, really good businesses who, who wanted to invest. It's not just about the valuation. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the sort of headline. It can get quite excited about that at, at times, but you've got to look at the, at the rest of it quite closely, both the terms and what the fund wants you to achieve. So as, as you mentioned, you know, VC is about about grow, 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 and then come back for more money and, and continue growing. That that can be fantastic and that can be that can be the right path, but you gotta work out whether it's the right path for you. Um, um, addictive drug for those. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you could have a huge success and walk away with um, not a lot to show for it yeah. at, at the end of a long time. You know? I, I remember, yeah. I think it was a discussion we had going into that first venture capital round and there was, you know, private, it was a kind of stay private or do the venture capital thing or go slower. And one of the catalysts for me on taking that was if we want to be backed into a corner, it's a force you can bring on the business if you want it. If you want to be pushed to grow, take venture capital. You've got to have hopefully the gumption to know when to stop, which I think we did. This mm. is enough. Mm. 100% is enough. <laughs> we'll stop at 100 because it, there's cracks. But if you want to put pressure on your business, it's, you can use capital sources to do that. This is last round, Series B, one of the catalysts was it'll professionalize us. It'll, it'll turn us from a high growth startup into a great on a global scale business. So bring people in that'll force you to do that. May not be comfortable because it's a force, but you can use capital to force you to change. The other like sort of relatively minor difference, but it's noticeable, uh, mm. is that like local VC, and this is changing quite quickly, but local VC when we started with them were relatively unsophisticated in being able to provide extra analysis and, and reporting and, and stuff. Whereas when we went with Neil, uh, you, you would get that whether you wanted it or not at times. You know, they, they, they have rooms of analysts who work through stuff and identify things and ask hard questions. And you, you might disagree with, with, with their take on it, but it forces you to understand your own business a lot more and perhaps how other people are perceiving it. So that is changing locally with some of the increased sophistication um, that we recently see from Airtree now, I, yeah. I would say. But um, yeah, that, that's a thing to, to pay attention to. Just know what you're getting into when you take, when it, you take it, money. I agree. Probably not like disciplined to any other partner. Know what their objectives are and know where you're going to have to dig in if they miss a line. One last question, and, and it's this. If you could give one piece of advice to your founding selves looking back on your journey. So if you could turn the clocks back and give just one piece of advice to Mike and James 10 years ago, what would it be? I mean, there's been a few things, kind of tactical things that it'd be nice to have worked out earlier, sooner. I mean, whilst the philosophy hasn't changed and we're still 100% committed, and we've always been 100% committed to, to, to customer experience and ongoing loyalty, um, we perhaps didn't always have the right tools and right visibility to ensure we were doing a good job of that because a lot of the, the push factors can take you in the other direction. So I'd probably say something about, I'd probably give myself something advice. I'd probably also ignore it if I went back in time and think of myself. Another one would be to think a little bit more, as, as you start to get successful, to think more about um, the structural changes in the business from people who've been there, done that. Mm. You know, um, We've learned to to value so much the, the experience and advice of people who haven't even come out of e-commerce, but just have, have years of experience um, in large businesses, working with, with real situations. I think at the early days, we were kind of, why would you do something so stupid? You know, and now, now we find ourselves doing exactly those things and going, oh, this is why they did it. This, yep. is, why, this is why everyone else does it. This is why big companies do this sort of thing. Um, so to understand that and get someone like that in, in earlier on, mm -hmm. Um, and we now have a fantastic guy who does exactly that on our board would, would be would be probably number one. That, that's very similar to what I was thinking. I mean, I'd, advice going back would be twofold. Um, talk to people whose opinion you deeply value and the experience is valuable. That's bit one. And two is don't be afraid to ask because more often than not, they're happy to spend the time. I've been, you know, in the last few years, very surprised by get an intro or email someone that you wouldn't expect you should be able to talk to. Yeah, come, you know, you can tour the warehouses, come up, spend some time. 
Like you're the second or third largest e-commerce company mm. in the world. Mm. Yeah, sure. Come on. Yeah, of course. And so I think the first few years, maybe five or six, you, you second guess yourself. But if you go with the right, I, I think now if you go, I really want to learn. I'm really authentic. I find often they're trying to learn from you as well because you're the newer version of where they are. They're 20 years into their journey. People will give you the time and they'll give you the insights and they learn from it too. So have the confidence to actually go and reach out to people. Um, and sometimes they're busy, but more often than not, they'll make the time. That really is wonderful advice, not only for founders and entrepreneurs, but for the general public at large who are always looking for connections to people who can help them and, and support them on their own journey. Thank you so much for today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I just can't wait to watch the Pet Circle story continue from here. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks so much. Yeah.